If you didn't know, there's an election this week. Um, if you haven't already voted, this is like, I've never seen this before. This has been amazing. So many people have like told me, like, I already voted. It's over for me. Uh, but I guess we'll know the results uh, later on this week. But there's an election going on. And we've been in a series called United We Stand because we need to talk about this. Because in the midst uh, of politics, politics can be very divisive. They, they can divide us because there's a fear factor and there's fear is used a lot of times to get us to, to vote one way or the other. And so, you know, we're kind of tiptoeing towards this and we don't know what's going to happen. And I would love to say that after the election is over and the results are said that everybody will be peaceful and happy and go, well, that's how it's going to be for the next four years. Uh, but we all know that's not going to happen because <laughs> that didn't happen four years ago. And so, you know, it's probably going to be divisive moving forward. There's going to be some arguments. There's going to be uh, a rough road up ahead. And we have a lot of things that are going to come up in life. I mean, 2020 has had its challenges, and I'm sure 2021 and beyond is going to have its challenges too. And so that's why it's so very important that as far as it comes to us, we, the church, that we model how to do something uh, that's not really done anywhere else. And that's this. We, we have to model how to disagree politically and love unconditionally. This is so important that we protect the unity of the church. That we are able to disagree with one another. Maybe on what should happen or how this should get fixed. But that we still are able to love each other unconditionally. Because this is essential to the Christian faith. God's relationship with us is built on love. But what gets, gives credibility to that love, where people see that love fleshed out, is when we decide to be peacemakers, when we decide to protect the unity. I like how uh, Marcus Barth put it. He was a uh, Swedish scholar um, of theology from Berlin. And if you know anything about Karl Barth, this was Karl Barth's son. But he said this. This is a quote from him. He said, The church has its place and function between Christ and the world. But she, the church, is not the mediator of salvation. She is not the savior of the world. She is not even a redemptive community. But she knows and makes known the savior and salvation. The task of the church, therefore, is one of unity. See, here's the thing you've got to understand. We don't do the saving. We're not the saviors. We're not a redemptive community. But what we do amongst one another in the body of Christ, in the church, what it does is it paints a picture of God. It's like a colored by numbers, right? And where we color, where we fill in, it paints a picture for the world of who God is. And so when we don't love each other unconditionally, when we're divided amongst each other, it makes people think, well, then that's just all cheap talk. They're just hypocrites. There's no way that they really believe that, and there's nothing really transforming about it because I don't see anything changing. I don't see anything transformative being done. And so we have to protect the unity of the church. So we've talked about how to have unity in spite of diversity. We've talked about how we can disagree politically because, we, like we said last week, where you stand really depends on where you sit. So even if we're all on the same page as far as morality goes about what's right or wrong, we're all going to have different ideas on how the best way to love one another actually is, and that's what politics kind of is. And so we're going to disagree politically, and we've talked about that. 
by showing each other sympathy, compassion, and humility. But the last thing I want to talk to you about before this election coming up is I want to talk to you about what happens on Wednesday morning. I want to talk to you about what's going to happen next. And the question I want to ask you is, is this. What if he wins? And you, whoever just came to your mind is who you can go with, right? And just don't say anything for the next like two minutes while I say this. Uh, what if he wins? You know, the he. The he that you don't want to win. What if that guy wins? What if the guy who you're scared to death of what happens next, if they are in office, if they're in office again, what, 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 are, what happens then? What are you going to do if he wins? What if he wins? What's going to happen with our country? What if Biden wins? What if Trump wins? What if the party you've decided to vote for it doesn't actually win this election? What in the world are we going to do? There's a lot of doubts in people's minds about that. What are we going to do? Because we know we, we have a lot of challenges up ahead. We have challenges up ahead with Russia, North Korea, and China. We have challenges up ahead when it comes to racism and, and sexism. We have challenges up ahead in our economy. We have challenges up ahead in our health care. We have challenges up ahead with uh, our, our, our rights as, as Americans. We have troubles up ahead with, with laws. And, and we have troubles up ahead with dealing with COVID and all the different things. What, what, well, what are we going to do in each of those situations? What if... He wins. What if they're in power? What if they have the majority? What are we going to do? What are we going to do when that comes? And what are we going to do if the president we vote for isn't actually the president we have for the next four years? What do we do? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I'm, I'm going to help you understand what it is we should do if that happens. And even if it doesn't happen. And the person I want to turn to to kind of answer this question is I want to turn to the Apostle Paul. If you don't know anything about Apostle Paul, uh, he, he's just such an interesting person in history. He, he was just almost, I think, hand-picked by Jesus. I think when things just weren't moving quickly enough, Jesus was like, you know what would be great? We should take Paul and we should get him on our team. Well, what a win that would be. Because you have to understand, Paul was a unique character, probably different than any other disciple he had had at that point. Uh, Paul was a hater of Christians. He was a Pharisee. He was a bounty hunter, okay? He was the Mandalorian before there was a Mandalorian. I mean, he would go after Christians, and he would take them, take them to court, and he would make sure that they were persecuted, and, and he was also an understander of the law. He was a Jew, but he also had this unique perspective because he was also um, able to speak Gentile. He was able to speak Greek. So he could speak to that audience, which made him kind of a Swiss army knife. And he was a Roman citizen. So he had all these backgrounds and all these special things. He was a real Swiss army knife of a person. So Jesus has this encounter with him after he's resurrected and after he's ascended in heaven. He has this encounter with him, and it changes Paul's life. And this is how unbelievable the whole story is. The story is so unbelievable that when he did come out as a Christian and say, well, I've, I've switched teams, I'm a Christian, when he went to the disciples, the disciples didn't even believe it was real. They thought it was a trick. They thought they were getting double-crossed or something. And so they had a, a real hard time of trusting him at first. But once they understood that Paul really was who Paul said he was, then things began to change. 
And, and Paul really became kind of like the godfather of the New Covenant Church. I would say him and Peter had a huge substantial impact on the church. And Peter, or, or Paul becomes this church planner and starts planting all these churches all over Asia, Asia Minor. And so as he plants these churches and gets them running and kind of trains people on what to do, he would also write them letters. And those letters were collected, and that's what makes up most of your New Testament. So past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see a few letters from James, a letter from Peter. But then a lot of those letters that you read that make up your New Testament, those come from Paul. And what's really interesting about those letters is some of them were written from prison. Paul actually kind of became like Jesus in the fact that everybody wanted him dead. And so people began to go after him, and once they finally caught up to him and caught him, his one trump card, actually probably Jesus knew that he was able to throw down, was, I'm a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he was privileged, and so he could say, I don't want to be judged by your courts, I don't want to go through your court system, send me to Rome and put me through a Roman trial. And so that's exactly the trump card he played, and that led him to get put in a different prison where he awaited his trial. And so he pulled that trump card and was put in prison, and you all know, we've talked about this before, prison at that time was totally different than prison today. You were kept alive by your friends. Your friends fed you, your friends brought you magazines, your friends made sure you had medicine, your friends took care of you. And so Paul, he sat in this prison for we don't know how long. But what's amazing is that while he sat there in this terrible predicament that none of us would want to be in, he started to write letters to the churches that he had started or been a part of. And so these are commonly uh, known uh, as the, uh, the prison epistles. And many, many of the things that you have in your, your New Testament Bible are actually written from Paul in prison, and he states this in there. And so he had this really unique perspective when he wrote a certain letter to his church in Ephesus. And it's so important and can really be put into the context of today because there were some things going on in Ephesus where there was kind of a split going on amongst the, 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 the two different groups that were in there. And so he writes them this letter that's very common to a lot of other letters that he wrote, but he says something so hopeful and so thought-provoking in there that I wanted to share it with you today. So in Ephesians 4, almost at the beginning of the letter, this is what he says. He goes, as a prisoner for the Lord. So he tells them, he goes, look, I'm sitting in prison, guys, all right? I'm sitting in prison right now. So as I say this stuff, remember, like I'm coming from a place where I'm writing this with a burden currently on me, physically, mentally, uh, spiritually. I'm writing you this from prison. So I don't say this, you know, thinking sunshine and rainbows, like I'm doing this in the middle of the trenches. So as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He says, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, a lot of times when we hear calling in the church, right, we think like a call to ministry. So we think like, oh, well, that's just a specific people, you know, the call to ministry. But he's not talking about the call to ministry. He's talking about make sure that you live a life worthy of the name of the label Christian. Make sure that as you take up this name, as you claim to the world, as you tell people on social media that you are a Christian, make very, very sure that your life matches the label. Make very, very sure that your actions line up with the teacher who you say you want to be like. Make sure that when you say Christian, you're a follower, not just a proclaimer. 
He says, you've got to make sure that you live a life worthy of being called that. And you know what? I, I, I read that verse this week, and I don't think I've ever preached on this verse, and I was really thinking about it, and I was like, man, you know, today, when we say Christian, do we really give it the weight? Do we really give it the value that that label, that that name deserves? In my opinion, I don't really think we do. Because you could go around the community, you could go around amongst your friends and go, you know, hey, what's your religious affiliation? And probably a majority of people would tell you, I'm a Christian. But today we live in a time where, sadly, we don't really know what that means, do we? Where if somebody says Christian, we don't know exactly what that means. Because there's so many different Christians out there. That could mean I go to church. That could mean I have a Joy FM sticker on my car, which means I cut people off happily while listening to King and Country. You know, that could mean that I believe in that I'm a follower of Christ and that I follow him and that I've sacrificed my life and I generously give and I generously serve and that I'm trying to live a selfless life and put other people first. I mean, you could, you could create so many different categories of what a Christian really is. But the thing is that back when Paul was writing this letter, it was pretty cut and dry what a, what a Christian looked like. Christian was Christian, period. There weren't subcategories of Christians, or there weren't like little Christians and big Christians. There wasn't a top 10 Christian and you know a number one level Christian. It was Christian. That was it. And he says, here's the thing. You've got to make sure that you live a life worthy of that name. Make sure that you're living a life that, that's, that, makes that gives that the credibility that it deserves. God bless you. And then in verse 2, he goes on and he says, so what does this look like, Paul? What does this look like? And Paul says this. He says, so be completely humble and gentle. He says, be humble and be gentle. And again, that word humble, we've, we've talked about this. has come up so many different times in the different letters that we've read that talk about this subject. Humility is a huge, huge part of being a follower of Christ. But he also says, be gentle, which goes back to what Jesus said. You remember on the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about when Jesus said, blessed are the meek. And we talked about what meekness means. Actually, in several translations of Paul's... Um, letter here, it uses the word meek. It says, be humble and be meek. Meek means gentleness is my strength. That's what Jesus said. Jesus, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who decide to be gentle, who make gentleness a strength of theirs. And Paul, he echoes these words and goes, here's what you guys have got to make sure that you do with one another. You've got to be humble with one another, and you've got to be sure that you are gentle with one another. Which goes back to what we said last week. How can we do that? How can we love people who have differing, differing opinions than us? And we talked about you have to be sympathetic. You have to be a listener. You have to be compassionate. You have to be humble. This echoes Paul's words of with one another. We have to make sure that we are, we are gentle. We treat each other as if they're delicate. You know, We don't want to scare them off. We don't want to run them off. We need to treat each other as if they're gentle, delicate people. And that's important that we do that for one another. And then he goes on and he, he lists more. He says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. He says, it's so important that among one another that you're patient and that you bear with one another. You know, everybody has that friend at some point in their life. 
And, but you know, you know that one friend? It's that friend that you just bear with. It's that friend that you're patient with. And you know who I'm talking about because when you say their name, you don't just say their name. You say, oh, Michael. You know, are you just like, oh, freaking Michael. You know what I mean? Like, that's how you say their name. You're like, oh, Karen, you know. Oh, you know, you have to take a big breath after you say their name. You know what I mean? And if you're not laughing and you don't know what I'm talking about, you're that friend, okay? So just so you know, like, if you're not getting what I'm saying, you're the one people bear with, all right? But we all have that friend, right? And those friends, man, we, they're hard, right? It's like, we're, we're, you know, sometimes we just got to take a break and we're like, Oh, Michael, oh, man, it's just a timeout. I just need a timeout, you know what I mean? And sometimes, like, with those people, we think, well, I don't want to be a friend with that person. But actually what Paul is saying goes, everybody should have a friend like that. Everybody should have somebody in their life like that. Look, if you're just getting together with people who think like you and talk like you and who have the same mental capacity as you and the same bank account as you, if that's the only kind of people you're mixing with, then you don't get what the Christian community really looks like. Because the Christian community are people who bear with each other. People who are patient with one another. People who are gentle with one another. People who stick with one, one another through thick and thin. This is so important. If you ever leave Anchored Hope Church, okay, and you go and you have to find another church, whether you moved or I said something wrong in a sermon, okay, then here's what I want to make sure you do. When you go to a church, what every single church should look like is it should look like a hodgepodge mixing pot of a total different types of people who are different shapes and sizes. There should be young, young people, and there should be old, old people. There should be white, black, and brown people. There should be people with weird haircuts and weird tattoos and piercings and all kinds of crazy things. There should be fat people. There should be fit people. There should be skinny people. There should be people who listen to George Strait. There should be people who listen to DMX. There should be people who drive tractors. There should be people who drive electric cars. There should be all kinds of different types of people. It should be, I know, the very wide difference there, right? But that's how wide it should be. There should be all kinds of different people. You should walk into a church and be like, it's just like a mixing pot of different people because you know why because that is a sign that this is a place where people can believe and think and be different and still love each other unconditionally amen I think our church does a pretty good job of that. That's just my personal opinion. I'm a little bit biased. But that's what churches should look like. It should just look so diverse, so colorful. That when you walk in there, you go, wow, what in the world do these people have in common? Why in the world would you see Brandon hugging Martha? That doesn't make any sense. And the only thing, would, the only answer would be is because of the love of Christ brings us together. Because for every single one of us, our debt has been paid, our sins have been forgiven, and that is why we can be different, but we can still each call each other brother and sister. That's what the church should look like. That's what the church should be known for. That we bear with one another. That we're patient for one, with one another. And then he goes on. And uh, he, uh, he says this next in verse 3. He says, so make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says, you, you have to make every effort 
to make sure, again, he echoes the words of Peter. He echoes the words of Jesus when Jesus prayed right before he was taken, right before he was crucified, right before he was put on a cross. He said, Jesus, I got one last prayer request. Would you please, 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 would you make them one like we are one? Would you protect their unity? Would you keep them together? And Peter echoed those words in what we read last week. And Paul echoes these words again. So obviously, it's very, very important. It's so crucial to the Christian faith that the unity of the church be protected. He says, make every effort, do everything possible to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that bond of peace in the original Greek, it doesn't actually say bond of peace. It says, peace is your bond, which was a reminder to people when they read this. How do we keep the unity? Through peace. Peace is the glue that keeps you together. Say that with me. Peace is the glue that keeps you together. He says it's so very important. That is the bond. That is the sticky thing. That is what's going to make it stick. Here's the thing, man. This happens all the time. I grew up as a pastor's kid. I've been a pastor now for like 10 or 12 years. And here's the thing. Anytime I talk to one of my pastor friends, anytime I saw it in my dad's church, anytime I see it kind of rise up here where there's a little bit of drama in the church, where there's a struggle, you know where that always starts? You know what that always begins with? It begins with one person who decided to disturb the peace of the church. It always starts with one person that doesn't like how something is, and it is so important to them It is so substantial to them that they have to disturb the peace. And they usually don't disturb the peace by just going and talking to the pastor. They go and disturb the peace by trying to get people on their team. And then people have to be split. And then people choose sides. And then there's a battle that begins. And then that's when all of a sudden the, the church board is voting on whether the carpet should be red or should be purple. And it's the stupidest thing on the face of the earth. And it makes us look divided It tears us up. It destroys the unity. There's backdoor conversations. There's things happening behind the back. There's all this thing. Let me tell you something. For pastor appreciation, and again, this isn't really an issue here, but for pastor appreciation, the one thing I would always ask of you, the thing that we always talk about in membership class, the very first thing, the most important thing to me and for this church is that you always be agree with us that we must keep the unity of the church intact. That we agree to not be peace disturbers, we be peacemakers. And the people that I am the most appreciative of is that when somebody tries to do that, or when somebody just gets even you know, the desire to do that and does it even by accident, the people that look at that person, and this has happened before, somebody tries to do that or somebody, somebody has that inclination and it comes up and somebody looks at them and goes, we're not going to do this. If you have a problem, You need to go talk to pastor, not me. Those are the people that I go, bravo, 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 bravo. Pastor appreciation month right there. That's that's the gift you could always give. Because the unity of the church is so very important. We have to protect it through the bond of peace. It's so very important. And Paul echoes that. He goes, we have to keep that. And then Paul gives this awesome like football style sermon right here as he wraps this up and he goes so here's what you need to do you need to keep the unity of the church you need to live a life that's worthy of even being called christian so be patient with one another bear with one another and he goes through this thing and then he says this this is what he says next he goes because there is one body 
And when he says body, he's talking about the church. See, at that time, because the new covenant was a new thing, and because the old covenant was just for Jewish people who were circumcised, who were part of a bloodline, all of a sudden there were the Jews and the old, the old church, and then all of a sudden Jesus said he died for everybody. And so all of a sudden the disciples were aware that the body of the church can now not just include the Jews, but can include the Gentiles and the Samaritans and the Babylonians or anybody really who would like to become a Christian can be part of the body. And so just like typical church even today, things started to change and become very different. And so the old Jews said, well, why don't we just have a traditional service and a, conserv and a contemporary service? Oh, I'm sorry, did I say that? I mean, the Jews said, can we just have a Jewish religion Christian and then can we have a Gentile Christian? Let's mix them up. Let's keep the old people and the young people separate. Uh, let's keep the Jews and the Gentiles separate. Let's keep the circumcised and the uncircumcised separate, which I don't know how you'd check that walking in the door. But anyway, he said, I'm just making sure you're awake. <laughs> just making sure you're awake. Uh, <laughs> let's keep them separate. And so Paul was reminding them, and he reminds them through this letter to the Ephesians. He goes, you can't do that. We can't have separate services. We can't have separate churches. No, no, no. We're not going to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church and a Samaritan church. He says, we are one body. We are one church. We have one Savior. And you know what? I was thinking about that this week as I was kind of like praying about this and, and, and thinking it down. It's amazing to me that today when we talk about church, I'll invite people to church like all the time, right? And the first question I always get, I'll go, you got to come to my church. You got to check out my church. And then you know what their first question is? And you probably get this too. What kind of church is it? Right? Yeah, you all get that, right? What kind of church is it? And usually, this is the weirdest thing. The second question I usually get is, is it Christian? I go, what kind of church are you talking? What kind of churches have you been to? You know? But that's how sad it is. And I really wonder, I wonder, I just have a sneaking suspicion that if one day when we all get to heaven and we realize that there are Catholics and there are Lutherans and there are Methodists and there are Nazarenes and there are non-denominational, we go, oh my goodness, there's so many different churches here. And God looks at us all and goes, you know what? I never intended you guys to break off into all these little denominations and differences. I really intended it to be one church with one Savior. And you guys just kind of screwed it all up. I wonder, right? I wonder. Because it's amazing to me, I talk to people, and I'll, I'll go, you ought to come to my church. And they go, what kind of church is it? Is it Christian? The third question that you always get is, do you teach the Bible? I go, no, we use wizard spells, and we have a black book, and then we watch Power Rangers. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? I invited you to church. There's only one church. And here's what's so sad, okay? This is what's so sad, and this is what kind of drives me nuts about church as a pastor, is that there are so many differences between our churches, even in this community, even in St. Charles County, in Lincoln County, in St. Louis County. You go to all kinds of different churches, and the sad thing is, is that you won't always get the same theology. You won't always get the same message. You won't always get the same love. And it's ridiculous, and it's sad, because it's very clearly intended by Paul and everyone who followed him that the message was received is, we are one church. And when you walk into a church, the only only difference that you should see is whether they're brewing Folgers or they're like us and they're brewing pumpkin spice. That should be it. 
Because we should all be united by the love of Christ. We should all be together with the same understanding that we had a Savior who came and died for us and made a new covenant with for us. And that the command that was above all commands is that we love God and we love our neighbor in the same way that he has loved us, period. I could really care less what denomination we are part of because denominations are not king. God is king. And he is the Lord. And his word is our inspiration that was written down by people who followed him and saw it with their own eyes 2,000 years ago. That's it. And so when people ask me that question, I go, look, you're just going to have to come, okay? I'm not going to tell you what denomination we are. I'm not going to tell you how we do communion. I'm not going to tell you. Just come. Just come and you'll get it. Because it's that simple, and it was always supposed to be. So Paul says, we're, we're one body. And then he goes on, and he says this. He says, and we're one spirit. We come together united with the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ, which was so interesting about what happened, is not, not just that Jesus died for our sins, and that he rose again three days later, and he gave us a new covenant and paid for our sins, but that also that he predicted that the temple would be destroyed, and that the holy of holies would be gone, and that all of a sudden the spirit would live in our hearts, and that that spirit would unite us. Sometimes I mess up my words, and I really try to be careful, but when I talk about, Jesus, you know, we invite you into this place, that's so stupid. I should never say that. I think he even said that today. Because you know what? It's, it's, it's not the way it works. We don't invite Jesus into this place. It doesn't matter if we're in a church with stained glass or we're under a tent or we're in the middle of the where's cornfield. When we are together, it's our spirits that is already in us that unites us and brings us together. And when we decide to walk with that spirit and go hand in hand with God's will and we're obedient to that we're together in one spirit united with Christ and so he goes remember you're one body one spirit and he goes on and he says next he says just as you were called to one hope when you were called the one hope that we all have that every single one of us would live a life worthy of Jesus's approval that every single one of us would be able to represent him well and, and continue on the work of building the kingdom and that our reward would not be here on this earth, that our blessing would not be here on this earth, but that it would be in heaven. That is our hope, our one hope that unites us all together. And let me just say real quick, and if I don't get an amen, I'll just have to read it again. Aren't you so glad that this hope that is promised to you isn't based of what you do or don't do. And aren't you glad that this hope that has been promised to you, that we hold on to, that it doesn't matter if you were saved when you were three years old or you were 33 years old or you were 63 years old, that every single one of us, no matter our background, no matter our sin, no matter our brokenness, we all get the same deal. We all get the same hope. We all get the same reward. And we all get the same peace from God. Isn't that cool? And that's what brings us together even more, is that we're all on equal playing field here. It doesn't matter when you join the game, you get the same reward from God. And you have the same hope that I've had most of my life. And he goes on, and he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father-in-law. Uh, uh, father, not Father-in-law, Father of all. <laughs> Amen. One Lord, we all serve the same God. We all serve the same Lord. And we have one faith, 
one faith that has survived thousands of years of persecution, thousands of years of people trying in to go in and manipulate it and use it for, for, for their own selfish desires, one faith that unites us and that has survived, and one baptism, one baptism that took us all under the water and let us be reborn and, and adopted into the family of God. And aren't you glad that the water that you were baptized in, it didn't matter your color of skin, it didn't matter how, how much money you had in the bank account. It didn't matter if you had had sex before you were married or after you were married. It didn't matter if you were abused or unabused. It didn't matter if you were intelligent or unintelligent. The same water took us all under and every single one of us, when we came out of that water, we were reborn and we were calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ's name. One baptism, one Lord, one faith, one God, and one Father of every single one of us. So, then he says, who is over all. Which means he is sovereign and he is king over everything that he has ever created or ever will create. He is over all and he will always reign and he is always the top dog and he is always in charge. And there is no thing that is ever going to push him out of the throne. Satan tried to do it and it couldn't happen. Death tried to do it and he beat that too. There is no single thing that he will not ever be over. He is always the top dog. He is always in charge and he is always the king of kings. So he is over all, and he is also through all, which means there is nothing in this world through all. There it is. That he, there's nothing in this world that he cannot penetrate, that he cannot beat. There is no barrier. There is no wall. There is nothing that can ever contain him. People have tried, and people always will, but there is no thing, there is no group, there is no political party, there is nothing that is ever going to contain him. He will work through it all, and he will take any of it, and he will take even what was meant for harm, and he will use it for our good. He will work through anything. He is over all, and he was through all, and he is in all. In everything, good or bad, no matter if it was Pharaoh with the Egyptians or whether it was the evil things that David did later on or whether it be ISIS or any other terrorist group, it doesn't matter what evil is in this world. Even though he didn't cause it, he will work through it and he will take it over and he will be in it and he will turn it around for his will and his purposes and his good because there is not a single ingredient anyone can throw into the recipe of God that is ever going to make it spoil. So he is over all, through all, and in all. So with all of that said, let me ask you a question. It's going to be on the screen. Man, that was really dramatic. I really thought that was going to work. The question is this. What do you have to worry about? On Wednesday, when you wake up, and we have the same president, we have a different president. What do you have to worry about? If you really believe that he is over all, and he is through all, and he is in all, and he is the king of kings, and no one can ever throw him, and never, no one will ever contain him, and no one will ever throw him off, and he will always have the last word, and in the end, he will win, then what in the world are you worried about? See, Christians should be hopeful. Christians should see opportunity. Christians should go, I, I, it really doesn't matter 
who's in the Senate. It doesn't really matter who's in the Supreme Court. It doesn't really matter who's president. I mean, it'd be nice. This is what I believe. This is how I voted. But in the end, it's God who's king. And he is my Lord. And he is the one that I've put my faith in. If that's what you believe, then fear not. Then fear not. Which is a command that Jesus gave us so many times. Which is a command that Jesus gave his disciples time and time again after he told him, by the way, most of you are going to die. By the way, most of you are going to die a sinner's death. Most of you are going to be put on a cross as well. Most of you are going to be persecuted. Most of you are going to end up in prison. But fear not. And we, when we're just a little bit inconvenienced, begin to fear. And we, when we're just a little bit inconvenienced, begin to lose hope. I told Kate this week, I was in a, I was in a Zoom meeting, and it started off how all my Zoom meetings do. And it was very disappointing because it was with a group of pastors. <laughs> and it started off with, well, 2020. And I was like, really? That's how all my meetings start. And you know what? When I talk about 2020 with anybody, I say 2020 has been a great year. I love 2020. 2020 has been awesome. It's been hard. It's been tough. But in it all, we've remembered that God is over all, he is through all, and he is in all. And God has sent us new people. God has revealed to us new answers. God has given us new wisdom. And we've taken all the different hoops that this year that life has thrown us, and we've jumped through them, and we've made them work for us. Because we believe that Jesus had us through the whole thing. And so I'm tired of looking at life and life ahead and going, what's next? How bad's it going to get? I'm looking ahead and I'm going, well, God will still be God. And God will still be king. And God will still be transforming us. And God will still be making things new. It was amazing to me last night just how happy everyone was. Everybody was incredibly hopeful and happy. And even some people are like, you know what? We, we were forced to do new things. And I kind of like the new things. I kind of like the new hoops we had to jump through. It kind of made it a cool year. And that's exactly what God does. He takes anything that's cruddy that life throws at us. And he goes, let me show you what I can do with this. Nothing's going to spoil my recipe. I'm still going to make it good. I can take it, I can make it sweeter, I can make it better. If you just trust me, if you have faith in me, if you still have hope in me, I can do it all. And so looking ahead through this week on Wednesday morning, if, if we wake up with a new president or if we don't, it really doesn't matter. Because we are still going to be the church. We are still going to have our Lord. And we are still going to love each other unconditionally even when we disagree politically. So, my invitation to you is to not fear. And I know that's easier said than done, but it's a journey, and it's a step. And so maybe for you today, the baby step to take today is for you to pray to God, God, I say I trust you, and I call myself Christian. Would you help me to live a life worthy of being called Christian. 
And would you start in helping me believe what I say I believe when I say Christian? Would you help me to believe that you are Lord, that you are over all, that you are through all, and that you are in all? Will you pray with me this morning? God, this morning, we come to you. God, in the midst of all things and all situations and all seasons, whether there's a Republican in the White House or a Democrat in the White House or a conservative Senate or a liberal Senate, in all situations, God, we know that you are God, that you are a way maker, miracle worker, a promise keeper, a light in the darkness. God, would you help me this morning to make the decision to trust you, to believe in your promises, to have faith in you, and to believe this morning that you are, in fact, over all, through all, and in all. God, please do that to me today. In your name we pray. Amen.